You're listening to Mike and Kristen. The podcast. I'm Mike, a musician, writer, and producer. And I'm Kristen, a painter, writer, and designer. Our show is all about following dreams, taking chances, and what life as an artist is really about. Together, we bring you weekly guest interviews and thought-provoking conversations. Let's go! Episode 39, episode 39. That's how old you are for just a couple more weeks. Couple more weeks. We're getting close to the big 4-0 and the holidays. Big 4-0 and Christmas. Isn't that exciting? Are you getting excited to go away? Yeah. Yeah, we're going on a little venture. Gonna celebrate Christmas in the United States in a couple (laughs) different cities. We're very traditional that way. Yeah. It's funny, though, everyone we've told that we have celebrated Christmas early with our families have been kind of envious of this approach. Yeah, we've already had Christmas twice yeah. in two different places. Two turkey dinners. We're just warming our bellies up for yeah. vacation. We went to the Valley to see your family and the Cape Breton to see mine and going to have a little one ourselves here and then one away. So we essentially get four Christmases. I love it. And speaking of Cape Breton, today's guest is not only a fellow Cape Bretoner, but a fellow Ryan. He is my first cousin. He's a very successful author, Cousin Tom, and he is having his uh, one of his latest books. He's a very prolific author, so he's he's got something coming out, it seems like. Every year there's a new book. But uh, he has a book being turned into a TV show. It's so exciting. Tom is on a tear right now. He's killing it. But it's funny because he's had all these recent wonderful things happen in his career. But looking back, he's had this really successful run of things for a while. He's won awards and, like you say, published so many great books. And I know he's one of my niece's favorite authors and so many people's favorite author. Yeah, he's he's doing a lot of great things. And he is... Uh... A good guy and great, great storyteller. That's probably what makes him a good author. (laughs) But uh, having him on here this week was an amazing chat. And I think it really dives into something that a lot of people don't really know much about, like how a TV show gets made. This is the first guest we've had that's had this type of twist on their career. So we were certainly starry-eyed hearing his story. So yeah, we'll jump into the chat with Tom and we, yeah, we talk about some some things growing up in Cape Breton, which are some good old stories and uh, yeah, just a, a wonderful chat with a, a good fella. Look forward to it. Let's go, folks. Woo! Been around for a long time. Nobody knows where it came from originally. It should be, that would be a fun uh, we Instagram put, project. Yeah, we should try to put a little treasure hunt out for the owner of this painting that it didn't have the cigar in the mouth. No, no, originally that, did. Uh, that came at some point in time in the in in my history with it. Yeah. <laughs> Can we do a photo? Yeah, of course. This is neat. Yeah, we're very glad to have you here, Tom. This is uh, you've had. One of the busiest last few years of anyone I know 
in I was going to say creatively, but maybe just in general, you are getting a book turned into a TV show. Yeah. Tell it's us pretty crazy. everything about that. <laughs> okay. Do, should I start with the TV stuff? Um, uh, start with the book, I guess, like how, how that came to be and how that came to fall into the hands of people who wanted to make it into a movie or, or a show. Okay. Well, I'll jump back in time a little yeah, bit. I've been yeah. writing, um, mostly fiction for young adults, teen fiction for the past 10 years or so. Yeah. And that's been the, the bulk of my career is writing books. And for the first few years I, I wrote and published a few books in Canada and, um, that was great. I was really fortunate to, um, you know, there's a whole side story about how I got into that, but I, I, I always knew when I was younger that I wanted to write books. And so just having that opportunity to write and, and have my books find an audience was really amazing. And at a certain point after having done that for a few years, I decided that I really wanted to kind of challenge myself and see if I could kind of stretch my career and grow, you know, wh what I had take where I had come from and, and, uh, and build on that. And so at a certain point I decided that I wanted to find an agent. I wanted to try to tap into the American market. It sounds kind of crass, but you know, I wanted a bigger audience. Oh, that's, that's cool. And, um, I also knew that the stuff I'd been writing, I was writing what, what would be referred to most, mostly as contemporary YA. So books about young people in the real world, dealing with family and relationships and, you know, coming of age stuff. Most of my books are about uh, queer teenagers. So, you know, coming out stories, that kind of thing. And I was really proud of those books and I really love them, but I decided that at a certain point I was getting a little bit bored of writing about that sort of, you know, real world stuff. And so I decided to tackle writing uh, a murder mystery because I grew up reading mysteries. I love mysteries. I still read mysteries and thrillers all the time books, movies, TV, you name it. That's kind of my sweet spot. And since I had this experience writing for, for teens, I decided to try to write uh, a young adult book for, uh, a young adult book that was also a murder mystery. And that's kind of where the book came about. And so my first mystery was called Keep This to Yourself and is called Keep This to Yourself. And I finished writing it in 2016. And I used that manuscript to try to find an agent. And I did find a literary agent pretty quickly with it. I was really proud of the book and I knew that it was something special. I knew that it was, you know, it, I had grown as a writer with this book. And so the agent took it and we, we shopped it around for, for almost a year before we finally found a publishing home for it. And then that became my first American release. It became my first hardcover. And it also very important to this story. It became my first book where the publisher actually put money into marketing me. So I got mm -hmm. sent to some really interesting book shows. So I went to the International Thriller Writers Festival in New York City. I went to the Book Expo of America and BookCon, which is also in New York. Um, and that's a huge, like a massive book conference. Was uh, one of those the ones with R.L. Stein? Yeah. So at, <laughs> so at the Thriller. I was so excited for you in that moment. Like it was crazy. childhood, just idol He's writer. one of the biggest authors probably of all time. He's in, or he's, I think he's 86 or 87 now. He, he and I were on a panel together. So they, the International Thriller Writers Festival, it's called Thriller Fest, is in New York. And it's thriller writers, all big names. Like anybody who's a big name in the thriller world 
goes to Thriller Fest. So Harlan Coben and uh, Lisa Unger and Karen Slaughter and all, all these people. And it's mostly based on kind of adult thrillers, like the kind of stuff that you would associate with thrillers. But there was one, and it's in a big ballroom. It's in a big hotel in Manhattan. And they have panels all day on craft and they have FBI <laughs> ballistics experts will come in and it's for writer, writers more than readers even. Okay. It's one of those, a lot of these book conferences are for readers, but this yeah. one is for people who want to write thrillers. And so there was one panel for writing for young people and I was on that panel and R.L. Stein was right next <laughs> to me. And he was really funny and of course everybody comes to see R.L. Stein. Nobody was there <laughs> to see me. Um, but you know, it was a great panel and he was really quite funny and at the end of the uh, of course, I got my picture with him on stage, which was really cool. And at the end of the uh, uh, the panel, everybody was kind of leaving, and he leaned over and he said, you know, do you want some free advice? And I said, of course, obviously. And he said, um, writing for teens is great, uh, but write for the middle grade audience. If you have an idea for a middle grade audience, go write for a middle grade audience because they are the most passionate book lovers in the world. When you're eight, nine, 10 years old, you're not old enough to think you're too cool for books. You're really passionate about the things you're into. You'll talk to your friends about it. If you ask your parents for a book, of course they're gonna buy you a book because parents want kids to read. So I haven't taken him up on that advice yet, but I, I thought that, <laughs> that was- That makes sense though. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Anyway, he was really cool. And so I met lots of really neat people at all of these events and it was really amazing networking for me. And um, to get to your question, I the final event that I did to publicize that book was called the American Library Association Conference. And it's a big librarians conference and it was it's in a different city every year, but it was in Washington DC in 2019. And so I flew to DC and I was only there for two nights and I had one event. It was a book signing at my, my publisher at a booth. And so on the schedule, you could see Tom Ryan was signing, keep this to yourself from one o'clock till 145 or whatever. And what happens is, the librarians will go through the schedule, see which books they want, check it off and, and get a ticket. So when my signing was happening, there was a lineup, a really big lineup of people who wanted to get a free copy of the book and I would sign it and say, hey, how's it going? And so I'm doing this signing and I'm talking to people and it was really you know fun to talk to librarians from all over North America. But while I'm doing it, this lady, this quite short, well-dressed lady kind of came over to the side and tapped me on the shoulder. I was in the middle of signing a book for someone. I said, hi. And I looked over my shoulder. You said, hey, what? who are you? What is this? What's this all about? And I said, well, this is my um, it's my first murder mystery. And and uh, I'm still trying to talk to, to librarians. And, and she kept asking me questions. And finally, I said, do you want a copy? And she said, yes, absolutely. And so she took it and she left. And I didn't think anything about it. And the next day, I was going to the airport and I decided to stop at the convention center just to say goodbye to my publishing team. I had my backpack. I was just dressed in jeans and t-shirt and I was just, thanks for everything guys. This has been a lot of fun. And that woman came through the crowd. I'm so happy I found you. Um, I, I went back to my hotel room last night and started reading your book and I was so into it that I, uh, I canceled my dinner plans and I stayed up late and I finished it last night oh. and it was amazing. <laughs> and I'm a producer in LA and I really want to buy the rights to the book. So our eyes are bugging out of our head for people that can't see us right now. Oh, it was so it, exciting. So on one hand, it's like, this is the craziest thing that's ever yeah. happened. And it turned out that it was the most unbelievable, like right place at the right time. But in the moment I'm like, okay, sh yeah, sure lady. <laughs> like, yeah. 
there are a lot of bullshit artists in the world and I kind yeah. of just I, I was like what are the chances but she um to make to make a very long story short she was the real deal and she she set me up with um a creative partner to turn the book into a pitch and then we pitched it and um she turned out to have lots of contacts her name is Cheryl Bear and she's uh, a really amazing person I call her my fairy godmother and she hustled it really around LA for two years and she had a lot of contacts. She was the casting director on that 70s show. And so nice. she knew those um, actors really well. And she got in touch with Wilmer Valderrama who played Fez. Yeah. She got in touch with his company and said, um, you know, we should pair up on this because he's got a certain type of clout. You know, a lot of actors have their own, their own production companies. And so it was her and his, his company and his producers who kind of made this deal happen. And, you know, there's a lot of almost, there's a lot of maybes. There were many moments where we thought maybe something will happen. And I just had kind of given up hope on it because we pitched it for, for a while and then it didn't go anywhere. And then just this past January, I got a call from, from Cheryl and Caitlin, the producer with Wilmer's company out of the blue and they were screaming and they said, you got a deal. And so they basically found a, a home for it. And, uh, because she's really taking care of my interests, I was able to spend four months this year working with our uh, writing team. We hired writers, we interviewed writers, we got to read lots of scripts. We found a really great team. And I spent four months on Zoom every day um, with these amazing Hollywood screenwriters turning the book into scripts. And so we wrote six episodes of TV and we just last week got the green light for production, which means that sometime in January, February, March, they'll start shooting it and it will be, uh, be a six part series. Well, thanks for joining us today, folks. Uh, where do you even begin? Congratulations. Thank this you. is yeah. just beyond exciting. We knew that this was in the works. I had no idea this was the backstory to how you landed here. Yeah. I just, honestly, right place at the right time. And I do say... A lot of it is luck, but I do feel like luck is opportunity meets preparation. Yeah. And, you know, if I hadn't, you know, I don't want to pat myself on the back, but you have to have, pro you have to have a, something that you're proud of for something like this to happen. I was really proud of the book and I knew that the book was a good story, but there's, you know, what are the chances I was going to run into this woman? And, uh, but it did happen and I've, I've learned a lot over the last year and she, i I get to be an executive producer. I'll get to chime in on the casting. I will get to visit set. Um, they're going to shoot it, I think in Puerto Rico. That's the latest I've heard. Cool. And I'll get to go down for a week and kind of hang out and just watch these actors bring my characters to life, which is, you know, uh, just such an unbelievable opportunity. How, how much, there's, I guess there's so many ways we could take this, but I'm, I'm curious how much the writing of the show veers from the, the book itself. It quite a bit, actually. Yeah. I mean, the storyline is basically exactly the same. Like the central mystery is the same. And yeah. that's why they hired me to write it is that I know the mechanics of the mystery. I know the logic behind why all the pieces fit together because yeah. it is kind of a complicated plot and there's some really big reveals. And so all of that stuff stays. It's still a story about five teenagers who were best friends and have kind of drifted apart. And one of them uh, is killed by a serial killer, and so there's a lot going on. But one of the one of his best friends decides to try and solve the case. It's a cold case, and so all that stuff is the same. But the biggest shift is that um, the network that bought it is uh, it's called T Plus, and they're a streaming hub 
it's hard to kind of keep it all straight, but they're a streaming hub for Telemundo, which is one of the world's largest Spanish language networks. And they're part of the NBC Universal family. And they're starting this new streaming hub that will be English language content f- uh, kind of about the Spanish American, you know, Hispanic Latinx world. And so the characters in my book are teens in a New England town. I actually wrote the book set in kind of a Nova Scotia, uh, but my publisher, because they were American, said, can you change it to Maine? So the, yeah. they were really, but it was all very vague. It could have been a town outside of Lunenburg. It could have been a town in Maine. Yeah. And, you know, the teens were, uh, you know, kind of what you, the types of teens you would imagine in that sort of town, mostly white and, uh, you know, middle class. But the characters have been changed to, they're all going to be Latin. So there'll be, uh, I think, you know, the casting will help determine that, but there will be, a, you know, probably a Mexican-American, Cuban-American characters. And it's going to be set in Miami, which is a huge change to take it from a small coastal town in the, in the you know, Northeast yeah. to like the vibrant, <laughs> colorful <laughs> city of Miami. So a lot of that stuff changed and we really wanted it to be cult- culturally um on on point and yeah. so most of the writers in the room you know we have uh you know cuban american a couple of cuban american writers we have argentinian american writer and you know the producers and the production team and the network team lots of people chiming in with notes and so all of that clearly is out of my realm of understanding so that stuff kind of evolved through the writing process we shifted a lot of things the family dynamics are different but the 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 basic story stays the same. So for me, that's really exciting because yeah. I get to see the you know the the central core of my story taken away, and you know I'm still involved, so I have some say in things. But it will turn into something new. It'll be it'll evolve, which I think the best adaptations have some some part of that uh, approach in them. How was your experience turning that into a script? Like, had you done that kind of work before or were you kind of leaning on the expertise of those on these Zoom calls? So I went to film school. I went to the NSCC two-year uh, screen arts, which was great, but I didn't do a lot of screenwriting. I have written some short scripts. I I would definitely not call myself a screenwriter. I think I might now. I'm a screenwriter in progress. I 100%, like I looked at this as if I was getting paid to take a master's level course in screenwriting because I was with everyone in that room and they, they call it a writer's room. We were on zoom, but the traditionally it's everyone gets together in a room for a few yeah. months and there's a big whiteboard on the wall and they, they call it breaking story. You're, you're putting out story beats. You're, you've got notes on the wall and everyone in that room with me, um, was a seasoned writer with lots of experience. And so I learned a lot from them about how mm-hmm. to take, you know, the elements of a story and trans transpose them into script form. And so there are a lot of things that you don't think about when you're writing a book um, that you need to really kind of make sure come across on the screen. And the screenplay is where you, you know, make that clear to the filmmakers. Because there's so many moving parts. When I write a book, it's just me in a room by myself. You guys know, I mean, you had each other, but you're, you're, you're really kind of concentrating on the laptop. It's just you and the story and you're trying to pull the, pull the words together. Screenwriting is more collaborative. Um, at least in TV. And then you have all of these other moving parts. You have casting and you have locations and you have art department and you have directors. And um, so there's a lot going on and you have the producers and the network who have their ideas and they, they will come in with notes. So you kind of have to be prepared for a lot of different voices. And so a lot, a lot of the writer's room job is to take the story and to try and work it into scripts and to 
pick and choose the best stuff that's coming from the outside sphere and work it into the scripts. Were there any darlings you couldn't sacrifice or <laughs> you had to fight for? I tried to be, so my goal going into this was, A, what an amazing opportunity. Yeah. I can't believe this is happening. I'm not going to be the asshole who comes in and, <laughs> and tries to kind of throw my weight around because I just can't believe this is happening. And, yeah. you know, a lot of the time it's, um, if someone has a book adapted, they get a check and it's taken away and somebody else does all this work. But I had the really amazing chance to kind of sit in and be part of it. So I didn't want to overstep my bounds. I was willing to push back if something really big was if someone tried to change something really big and there yeah. were a few little moments where we would have, you know, heated discussions, but for the most part, the main stuff for me, my most important thing was understanding that this was going to be, uh, make a big cultural shift. I wanted the mystery to stay on track. That was my most important thing. And I felt like as long as I could kind of guide that part of the process and they were all really respectful of me and they would you know especially with regards to the mystery piece because i've you know i've written a few mysteries now and i i feel like i know what i'm talking about how to craft a good mystery they would turn to me and make sure that you know is this does this plot point work does this are we concealing this enough that it's a surprise later on so it was very collaborative and i think that certainly a lot of things changed but nothing that i'm upset about if that makes sense <laughs> yeah when you first took interest in writing, mm -hmm. maybe it was in your younger years, and we'll talk about that, where you where you come from, would you ever in your wildest dreams have imagined that this is where you would be at this point in your life? Like, were your, were, did your dreams allow you to think that big at the time, or have you just kind of let your career evolve and unfold as it has? I think it's probably a mix of both. I did definitely have big dreams when I was a kid. I mean, I think my, anybody that would know me as a young person would know that I wanted to write books and I wanted to make movies and I was always writing plays for my brothers to act out. hundred percent. And I, I'd love to see one of those yes. now. Yeah, no, I'm, well, thank God we didn't all have social media and yeah. phones everywhere. Um, I really did always want, I always imagined something like this happening, but I don't think I expected it to happen. Mm. And, you know... When I was at, when I was in high school, I would write stories and then I went to university and did an English degree because that seemed like an appropriate place for somebody who likes to write. And I think at that point, you know, you, you enter the real world and your dreams start to get diminished a little bit. And so I went to film school and tried to work in the film industry because I thought maybe this is a way that I can take my creative skills and make money. And over time that kind of turned into, well, the film industry kind of is, you know, sometimes it doesn't have space for everybody to tell their stories. There's a lot of working parts a lot of people who are just kind of cogs in the machine. And so I went off and got a grown up job. And over time, I think I just kind of got into that. You need a, need a career and you need to be able to pay your rent. And, and, and so there was a stretch of time in my life where I really kind of stopped doing stuff. I stopped doing creative stuff. I would still kind of pick away at short stories, but then my, my life kind of took a turn in 2010 that let me kind of jump back in and take another crack at it. And at that point, I think my goal was less, can I achieve these big dreams? And it was more, can I write a story? Can I write a really good story? Can I finish writing a novel? And that was way more important to me than, um, you know, can I get published and become famous and make lots of money? It was really about the work. Um, I think that that switched something for me was when I, when I kind of stopped 
worrying about where it would take me and started working, worrying more about what I was creating. And once that became my focus, I found, you know, things haven't been easy, but it's been a slow and steady increase. It's been 12 years since I got my first publishing deal and it's been a little bit better every year. And, um, you know, after 10 years, you look back and you say, holy shit, I've done a whole lot of stuff. And I mean, because I focused on the work as my main priority, the, the other stuff kind of fell into place, I think, um, because of that. And so I did have big dreams and, um, I feel right now, like I'm achieving things that I, as a seven-year-old, I probably believed would happen, but as a 20-year-old, <laughs> I never would have thought would happen. Yeah. Hey, Kristen, do you know what's awesome? What, Mike? Real food bars. Mm, they're so delicious. They are delicious. I take them on my runs with me because they're such clean fuel. Like you're out on the track and you open up a bar while you're running? Yeah, just tear it open right there on the spot. That's versatile. They source all local ingredients. All local? So they call themselves Made with Local because they support so many local farmers and food makers. Where are those farmers based out of that they support? Nova Scotia. Holy smokes, this is <laughs> getting even better and better. Where can you buy their products? So they still manufacture in Nova Scotia, but you can find their product all across Canada now. This is unreal. And they started out as just a small table at a farmer's market and have now achieved B Corp certification. That sounds pretty fancy. Yeah, they have tons of delicious flavors. I'm partial to anything with peanut butter and chocolate, as you know, but yes. they also have lemon and blueberry, uh, gingerbread for the holidays. Oh man, they are pretty darn delicious and healthy. Like when I eat like seven in a row, if I ate seven Mars bars, you know, I'd feel like I was gonna die, but I eat seven of those and I feel like I can take over the world. Yeah, you could lift a car after yeah. that. Yeah, you get this like power in your bones. Made with local. And where can we find these bars and all the great products they create? So I usually pick up my real food bars just at our local grocery store, but they're also found in lots of health food stores, gas stations, and little markets across the country. They are doing awesome, and they taste awesome, nutritious, and delicious. Real Woo! food bars. Woo! Woo! Real Woo! food Woo! bars. Made with local. Made with local. Woo! Do you think approaching creative projects with that mindset of kind of, I'm doing this for myself, I'm showing myself that I can do this, allows you to capture what you, you need to, to find the success that's, that's waiting for you? Yeah, I do. I think, I think the most important thing, I mean, people can disagree with me, but for me anyway, and I, I think the most important thing is to focus on the work. Yeah, And to be prepared to, the hustle is always a really important part of it. You need to be able to market yourself. You guys know all about this. You need to be able to go out and you need to let people know your work exists. You need to know who the right contacts are to have. But the most important thing always for me, um, and I think for most creatives is, should be the work. You want to get good at what you're doing. You want to push yourself. You want to stretch yourself. You want to be your own first audience. For me, when I write a new book, I, the first thing I always ask myself is, would I want to read this? And then I, I set about trying to write something that I would either want to read now or as a teenager, I would have liked to read. And that's been kind of a pretty simple rule that I always set myself. I have notebooks full of ideas. I have loads of ideas for new books. I have a lot of friends who have a hard time kind of honing in on the right idea. And I feel fortunate that I have the opposite problem, which is, you know, I finish a book and it's time to start the next one. 
I have to ask myself, which of these 300 ideas am I going to focus on? And the way that the thing that guides me usually is, or I try to make it the thing that guides me is, which one would I most want to read? And which one will I find most fun and rewarding and exciting uh, to write? And I'd be lying if I, if I didn't say that there was part of it is, will it be marketable? Because that has to be part of the equation as well, because I want this to be a career, not just a hobby. Yeah. Um, but for me, I found that, you know, you write something that you're passionate about, the audience will most of the time kind of, you know, It'll resonate come, with it. Yeah. yeah. It'll seem more authentic and it will be, you know, probably more unique because usually the stuff that I want to write is something that I haven't read before. So that makes it, you know, more unique. It's something that doesn't exist, hopefully a story that people haven't read before. And so that's kind of always been my guiding principle. It's such good advice. And this has been coming up fairly consistency with creative people and like do what makes you happy, like speak, speak your own voice and worry about how it's received after. Yeah. I want to ask you, it sounds like writing was an interest at a young age. Why, why writing of all the creative things you were drawn to? I think the the simple answer is that, I, so I grew up, Mike knows, Mike and I are cousins. That's probably came up in the <laughs> intro. First cousins. <laughs> first cousins. Um, <laughs> Mike knows that back in the day, I remember you guys had cable at an early age. <laughs> we had, you were country You guys were kids. the rich family, We huh? had country cable. Yeah. And by country cable, I mean we had- Two stations. We had one little black and white TV, and we had one like giant tube uh, color TV. That was it. And we had two stations. We had CBC, and we had CTV, ATV. Yeah. And- um, And sometimes the French Channel for hockey games. We didn't get the French Channel. <laughs> Deep Dale, we were lucky the in the Valley with our country cable. <laughs> yeah, that's real. Like I and I just, you know, we watched TV, but you know, Saturday morning cartoons. There was always something, something on. But you know, then it would be masked for shut-ins and candlelit bowling. That was it. <laughs> it's funny that I grew up in town, which is a very small town of fifteen hundred people, and where you grew up. When I look at it now, is Probably the distance I would go for on a walk nowadays, if I mm -hmm. wanted to do a long walk, like it's, you're whatever, five, maybe 10 kilometers away from my house. It's not very far, but you guys couldn't even get cable if you wanted to. You lived on a dirt road. It was- uh, Dirt road, no other kids. And, and we, like, we thought we were like big city folk living in Inverness. And oh, you guys were sophisticated, <laughs> like metropolitan. <laughs> like you had like several convenience stores to get yeah. candy at. You were on your bikes riding around playing hilly hawkers yeah. and we were in the literally in the woods yeah, yeah if you could walk to a convenience store that was metropolis oh for, for sure. sure and cable and the basement room with the cable tv yeah. so we had so we had no tv and um i was also a very introverted shy kid i was i i, I was a pretty happy kid but i was also very isolated like i was four years older than, the, than my brothers the twins and then james is a couple years younger than them so they had each other as a little unit but i was kind of the older slightly uh you know i was a nerdy weird introverted kid and so of course i would hide out at the library while i was waiting for the bus so i wouldn't have to interact with any <laughs> scary older kids and so i just read a lot like from the earliest age i was reading books were a really natural um thing for me to gravitate towards and um, I think like most people who become writers, um, certainly fiction writers, I think that, um, you know, you have to have a passion for, for reading. And I definitely did. I was obsessed with books. I read so many books when I was a kid and, but I was also really into like big imaginative, 
um, you know, I loved Star Wars and anything that had like a big epic scope to it. I liked stories and I liked adventure and I liked all that kind of stuff. And so the two things together made a, if you had asked me honestly, when I was six, what do you want to do when you grow up? I would have said, I want to write books. And it's mm. because books were the thing that I love the most. And I, you know, you could just barely wrap your head around. There's a name on the book. Somebody wrote this book and you, you know, when you're young, you don't really quite understand how it all works. It's just kind of magic. Somebody actually wrote this down, mm. and ma- but I aspired to that. And I think also it helps that I think Mike, you probably agree with this. And I don't know if you would agree with this and um, where you grew up, Kristen, but um, Cape Breton anyway is a very creative place. And it's really, there's a lot of support for the arts there. And, you know, I knew Frankie, Frankie Spook, Frank McDonald is my godfather and he's a yeah. writer and he he was a columnist for the local paper. And then he wrote a novel when I was in my early twenties and it just, we knew Alistair McLeod and his kids and he was a writer and there were people who painted for a and living. All those, uh, famous, uh, American expats who lived yeah. on the outskirts of a community, like Philip Glass, Phil Glass Richard Sarah, mm-hmm. like yeah, yeah. Richard Sarah lives fifteen minutes away from you guys. That blows my mind. Yeah, and I amongst mean, others, yeah. There, there were a lot of working creatives, and there were a lot, of, and none of them. I mean, those guys were probably well off, but I mean, most yeah. of them were people who were just kind of part of the community. And it, you know, we grew up in a, a very lower income community, and the artists kind of fit right into it. This yeah. is just what they did. It, it, I think it demystified creativity a bit. So it wasn't unusual for me to think that maybe someday I would like to be a writer. It wasn't some intangible thing. I feel like, um, you know, people who grew up in a city environment, um, probably in some ways don't have that. I mean, it depends, obviously everybody's upbringing is different, but I just knew that I wanted to do something creative and nobody ever really kind of put up roadblocks. My parents were certainly really supportive and, I think our town, for some reason, there's just a lot of storylines in our town. Yeah. And part of that, I think, is that the summers bring this influx of people and this huge change because for a large portion of the year, we're just this tiny little dying community. We're all just kind of on our own there out in the the middle of Cape Breton. And in the summer, this this influx of all these famous artists, all these tourists come in and it was just like... In, to me, that was very inspiring, and yeah, like I totally. always look forward to that. And but at the same time, just all the people in the community, like you had mentioned, were always just. It, se- it seemed like the town was a fairly good. Um, I don't know if it would be a melting pot or mosaic, but just like you could go to the Hof, and there'd be some guy who's on welfare, a doctor and an artist all sitting at the bar having a drink and <laughs> yeah. they all get along. Like yeah. it's That's unique though. And, and I wanted to ask you, Tom, about growing up in a small town and if there were any limitations to where you might have seen yourself going because I, I mean, I grew up in a very small farming community where there were no creatives, at least that I knew of. It wasn't something that we talked about or were exposed to, encouraged to pursue, that's for sure. But I never really thought about how just your townspeople were doing this. So yeah. it wasn't this great mystery or Hollywood unattainable thing. It was just kind of like, yeah, well, Virginia is making a living as a painting and Frank's a writer. And yeah, yeah, exactly. And I, I, I will also say the small town thing. And I think, I think, a, I think a lot of writers come from small towns. If you did a, if you did a breakdown, certainly novelists, people who write fiction and you're creating a story out of thin air. I think if you were to do a comparison, you know, published novelists 
and how many of them came from small towns, you would find a, 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 high, a much higher percentage than the overall population. Yeah. And I have a theory. I brought this up in interviews and when I've spoken to people about it before, but I do feel like, especially in a town like Inverness, where there are uh, deep roots, it's a small town with many generations of people. We can we went to school with people who our grandparents would have been friends with their grandparents. Yeah. And you have this sense of the web of connection that I think is really valuable as a storyteller. And I write a lot of stories about small towns. Not all my books are small towns. There's some cities or some suburbs, but generally I try to write about communities and things happening in communities. And in mysteries, it's really helpful to have, you know, secrets and people who have, you know, little things going on on the side that nobody else knows about. And I think growing up in a place where you really have this almost a third, a sixth sense of the, uh, this network of how everyone is connected in different ways. Everybody is connected in one way or another in a town like Inverness. Yeah. And I think that that's really kind of wonderful and magical. It can also be a total pain in the ass if you're trying to, you know, <laughs> break out of your, you're trying to grow as a person. Sometimes you can kind of get a little bit pigeonholed. Uh, but I think that the benefits definitely outweigh the the negatives there. And certainly as a writer, I've found that the small town reality has been really, really useful to me. And I go back to it time and time again and, you know, I'm trying to create new stories. It's not like I'm modeling my stories on on the town that I grew up in. But as I'm creating characters and thinking about, okay, how is this character related to that character and how do they connect and who else is connected to them? It's very natural for me to imagine these layers of complex human inter, interreaction, inter, interrelationships. Um, and it's been, you know, fun to work with that. And I think growing up in a small town you have connections with people that you may not have connections with if you grew up in another place. Oh, a hundred percent. Like I have friends who are just, they're nothing like me, like, but they're still some of my best friends because yeah. we grew up together. We went through all these things together. But if you, if we grew up in the city, I probably would have, there been more people who were into the things I did and I probably would have hung out with them. I'm not with this other guy group of people who would have found their own people yeah well like the example you shared about the trio at the hof like that collection yeah. and yeah. diversity wouldn't often exist in the city because you find your your posse and that trio at the hof like fictional or not like that that doctor probably would have treated the two people <laughs> yeah. at some point mm -hmm. their fathers probably knew each other and like you said it's this web of connections and you know, relatives and yeah you played hockey with this person you went to uh beavers was it beavers or cubs i guess they both existed <laughs> but this person i like think it's yeah and you 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 have people who would just go to bat for you in any way if even if you, i haven't seen someone in 20 years if i ran into them on the street somewhere they would yeah they would just be as good a person as you could imagine and the flip side too there are feuds that go back oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> generational People, somebody feuds. some catholic married a protestant and the family still haven't spoke like that kind yeah. of thing yeah. still goes on but it's all interesting and it's storylines yeah. do you find just in your day-to-day -day, tom are you like, is it hard to shut off that creative or writer's mind? Like, are you interacting with people being like, this would be a good character or that street name might find itself in one of my books? Like, are you always kind of thinking in that way? No, but I am always thinking. So I don't, what you, the, the, the um, what you just described, not really. I don't have a conversation with someone and they tell me a cool story and I think, wow, that would be great in a book. I know a lot, I know many writers who do 
like interact with the world that way. For me, I'm more, I'm always focused on what would make a great, you know, center thread to a story. And so I'm always thinking about that kind of thing in the background. And then when it's time to sit down and write, then I think I'm drawing on and pulling on things that happened or that I've experienced that I've heard about in the real world. So those things might come back. I might subconsciously tuck away things like that and then come back to them later on. Um, I think that's the best way I can describe it. It's hard to describe, you know, you know, the creative process is really mystical. And I think that there's a lot that you can kind of, um, you know, as you become more comfortable with what you're doing, you think you can articulate to yourself and describe to people, this is my process. But a lot of it is just kind of, it happens as it's happening. Yeah, yeah it's, it's hard to describe that. something that comes naturally to us, I imagine. But it's also something that's a very curious question for people, especially yeah. like a young aspiring writer would want to know, like, what does step one look like? Or what was your experience like? And are you able to articulate just even, you know, be it advice or just how you go about things in this could be because I know like stepping into my studio, the blank white canvas for a lot of people, that is an incredibly intimidating moment. Sure. It doesn't really do that to me now because I've done it so long. Like, mm -hmm. that's OK. This is just where things begin. Yeah. There's lots of information that I I trust because I have this experience behind me will just come to me naturally. Yeah. And like you're saying, hard to describe how that happens. But if you're able to speak to that at all, I think it is something that most people want to know about. Yeah, I think so. What you just described about the blank canvas is very similar with the blank page. And first thing, practice is the most important part. You have to start, you have to put your seat in the chair and, and, and start somewhere. And it helps to have an idea. When I first started my first novel, what happened was my husband, um, Andrew, was in the Navy for 25 years. He just retired. Yeah, Andrew. Yeah. He's still working in the, in the federal, for the federal government, but he's not in, not in uniform anymore, which is great. And he was posted to Victoria from Halifax in 2010, and it was a really unexpected move for us. And I was working for, uh, I had a, a great job, pension track job. This all probably sounds quite familiar to you. <laughs> and uh, I had, that was the plan. I was going to stick with this job, get my pension, and he was going to stick with the military and get his pension. And then we, and I came home from work one day and he said, um, I've been posted to Victoria. How would you like to, how would you like to quit your job and write that novel you were always talking about? <laughs> so at that point, I didn't know how to write a book. And I think I do know how to write a book. Every book is a big challenge and it's, you learn something new every time. But now when I look at the blank page, I do know where I'm, I know that there are things I have to do to, to pull an idea out of my head and turn it into a full length story. But at that point I didn't. And so I read a lot of books about, we had three months between this and we actually moved, like it all happened really quickly. And I, so I, I, I knew we were going to take six months and I was going to try to write a book in that six months and see what happened. And so I tried to prepare myself by reading as many books as I could about writing. And I watched interviews on YouTube with writers. And the one that stuck with me that I've read many times is On Writing by Stephen King. Yeah. which is a great book for any aspiring writers. You should read this book, even if you're not a big Stephen King fan, and I am, because he's really prolific and he's very popular and he can tell a good story and he just really gets off on storytelling. He loves storytelling, he loves writing, and that comes through in his work and it comes through in his... An East Coaster too. Yeah, he's from Maine. <laughs> I visited his house a few yeah. weeks. I had to go to Maine for something. I went to his house, which was really cool. <laughs> but his his book is two parts. One is his kind of experiences as a young person, how he became a writer. And then at the midway point, it's kind of a short memoir. And then the second half of the book is just his rambling about writing. And I got so many tips out of that 
book that really kind of made me feel like, okay, well, I can probably try this too. And one of the things that he said that stuck with me more than anything, it's not, it's not rocket science, but it was really, you have to be disciplined and you have to set yourself, a, uh, set yourself up with a schedule and you have to sit down every day and you have to start writing and you don't get up from the desk until you've written how much you intend to write. And he said he writes 2,500 words a day, six days a week, and he gives himself Sunday off. And so for me, as somebody trying to start writing a book, that was very practical, tangible advice. We moved to Victoria, new city, didn't know anybody. Andrew went away to sea on a ship for six months. Mm -hmm. And so I said, I'm going to do five days a week, because I'm not Stephen King yet. <laughs> and I'm going to do 2,000 words a day, five days a week. And I that's what I did. I sat down and I just started. I had you know, some ideas and I had to pick one, but I knew I had a limited time and I wanted to do it. So the most important thing that I would tell anyone is whatever your idea is, even if it's only loosely formed, force yourself to sit down. Even if it's once a week, Thursday evenings at seven, you know, you have an hour, book that hour off, turn your phone off, shut the door to your office or, or, you know, set up a card table in your bedroom or go to the library and sit down for an hour and do nothing but write for that hour. And you know, set yourself those kinds of goals and in time, things will start to emerge. And you'll realize if you do that for enough weeks, certainly if you do it every day for a few months, you'll have something and it might be super shitty. It might be a terrible first draft. It might be just part of a fragment of a story, but it will be something you can work with. And once you have something you can work with, I think it makes the whole thing feel a lot more achievable because it's, it's not a blank page anymore. It's a page full of maybe mishmash of ideas, but you can work on it and you can edit it. So that's always the thing that I tell people as my first piece of advice is to sit down and, you know, actually put just, stuff on the page. Just do it. It's great advice because it. it's specific. Like this is something like, here's a word count, here's a frame of time. Yeah. And like you were saying, as far as uh, the tips you took from Stephen King, it doesn't have to look identical, right? but it's a great template to get started. Yeah. Love it. And the other thing I, I say is, as a uh, this is I, specifically for writing but have a notebook with you everywhere you go. Because once you get into this phase of, okay, I've got something. I am every every Thursday and, and Friday, I'm spending an hour working on my book and it might take me two years to write it, but I know that I'm doing it. Once you get into that headspace and that story starts to simmer in the back of your head, you will find that you have ideas all the time. And it's the easiest thing in the world to lose an idea if you haven't written it down. And so I have notebooks literally everywhere. I have a notebook yeah. in the bathroom. I have a notebook in the in the glove box of the car. I have a notebook in every backpack and every every uh, jacket. So that if I have an idea on the go, I can just quickly grab a pen and jot it down. And I've saved so many ideas because there's nothing worse than having a brilliant idea and you have nowhere to write it down and you try to catch it later on and you've forgotten it. That's just, you have to convince yourself it was a bad idea. I think Mitch Hedberg yeah. had that joke. Yeah, that, yeah, it wasn't worth it. If he uh, couldn't get to a pen in time, he just told himself it was a bad idea. Yeah, write it off. <laughs> yeah. I know as a songwriter, it's probably the same thing, right? You must have like... Yeah, I do a lot of voice memos yep. with uh, melody ideas. or It's weird when, when I pick up a guitar... Like a lot of people will pick up a guitar to practice specific things. I just pick it up and whatever happens, happens. And right. usually it's kind of just messing around until I come up with something I like. Mm -hmm. And like if I go through my voice memos on my phone, there's probably 700 to 1,000 just quarter or half or even one-tenth of a song that exists. And some of them I know, okay, I'm going to come back to this. Right. 
at a certain point in time when it makes sense when I'm in more of a writing phase and and sometimes I'll I'll start playing around come up with an idea and like okay I got to work on this right now cuz it just feels like I have to but a lot of the time yeah it's just capturing that fragment of an idea and waiting to come back to it at the appropriate time yeah and you knew that, you know that you caught it yeah if you caught it and you put it yeah. away somewhere you can take a bit of a, a a breather and and it might evolve when you come back to it it could be something it might not even be what you remember but it's there it's stressful if you don't capture it yeah like because you 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 know you're probably gonna not remember it and i've had uh, i've had i have songs come to me in dreams fairly often mm -hmm. and if i don't just sit up groggy as hell and open the voice memo and uh, start singing or humming what came to me in the dream I will 100% lose it. Like I've done that before where I woke up like, oh, I love that uh, guitar line and I'll just hum it in my head, fall back asleep and then wake up like, shit, it's gone forever now. Uh, I have my first fully formed idea in a dream about a month and a half ago. It's never happened to yeah. me. And it was the craziest thing. I And I did, I woke up in the middle of the night. We were on a, we had a big trip. Andrew and I went on a big trip and we were staying in an Airbnb and I woke up in the middle of the night and it was one of those kind of disorienting moments where you're like, where am I? And then I realized where we were. And then I remembered the dream I had just been having flooded back into my head. And I was like, holy shit, that, that's a great idea. And I got out of bed and yeah. I kind of stuck across the room and grabbed my notebook and went into the other room and I wrote it down. I wrote like three pages and I don't know if I'll ever write it, but it was yeah. fully formed. And it, that that's when it really feels like magic when it you it, have you, a very charmed life at the moment it sounds like <laughs> <laughs> things i've been very fortunate that's for sure yeah like you've worked for good. it too i don't mean to take that away from you absolutely it's just oh listen i a feel a little bit of a joke i of feel like, like a that happened? horseshoe up my ass lately i do feel like <laughs> things have gone gone really well and and uh the big thing though so we went on this trip and it was kind of a because andrew retired earlier this year left the Navy and I had this amazing TV writing experience, which was super intense. I was working every day. Uh, it, it was on LA time because they were all in, in California. And yeah. so I would get on zoom at about uh, two o'clock every day and we would go till about eight or eight thirty every day. And it was great. It was really rewarding, but I, it, it was the end of May till the middle of September. So basically my summer was eaten up with this yeah. really cool project. <laughs> and I was using I was firing on all cylinders and it was really, really intense. And because it was with other people and we're beholden to each other, it was a very different experience for me than when I'm writing a book and I really just have to get up and achieve for myself. And by the time we finished, um, I was really kind of creatively drained in a way that I'm not used to being, I always have, am prepared. I can sit down every day and start writing. And I, that's my routine is to work in the morning and then to do other stuff like marketing or whatever in the afternoon. But by the time I finished September 16th, we both really wanted to go on this trip because we needed kind of a break and we had planned it for several months and we went on an amazing, we went to Europe for th three weeks and it was great. And then we came back and Andrew went back to the office and, you know, right now we're kind of an in-between phase of the TV show and my, my contract, my script contract is done. And I, my most recent book is finished and my literary agents have that. And it's the first time in 10 years where I've actually been kind of struggling to figure out what to do next, which I think is kind of healthy because there was such a drive for such a long time to be always doing the next thing that I never let myself stop and wonder about it. I would just pick a project, write it. I've been, I've been pretty disciplined about getting stuff done so that I can build this career. And so to have a moment in my life where I actually have to stop and take stock and think, okay, well, what's next 
and really not know is a bit scary, but it's also really quite, um, in some ways I feel like there's potential there. Like the fact that I don't know yet, you know, the optimistic part of me thinks that it's gotta be something great. I'm just not ready for it yet. I have to spend some time just letting the idea come. Let the idea percolate. Are you able to relax in this space or does it feel uncomfortable? Uh, I'm not a very good relaxer. Mm-hmm. I'm very anxious. Uh, I just always have to be doing something. Uh, but I'm trying to, f- but doing something might mean, you know, extra walks with the dog. We have a place in Cape Breton where I'm trying to, you know, plant trees and build a garden and renovating. And there's things to do to occupy my time. But I do feel like I I I'm I need to do a better job of, of letting that creative part of my brain actually meditate and and do some you know mental yoga (laughs) to kind of allow my my i'm not explaining this very well but i feel like i need it to kind of soften so that the it's not the anxiety that's forcing me to come up with a new project it's it's a it's a calm clear brain that allows me to come up with a new idea that makes any sense at all yeah i i think it's these moments of calm sometimes where you allow space for new things to come in like that so I feel like this is meant to be for you right now. And I hope you can find a way to just really cherish the time, the downtime. Do you find inspiration from other kinds of art? Like if you went to a gallery, for example, is that helpful to you? Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. But music, um, visual art, we went to so many galleries in Europe. I was anything that I could see. Architecture, um, gardens. I'm really into gardening and I just love going into, you know, beautiful, created gardens. Any, anything really. Uh, movies and TV, I've, you know, especially anywhere where there's a story or a, you know, something that I can imagine being turned into a story, I find that there's there's um, inspiration to be had, and really just anything that you can see that somebody took the time to sit down and create something, I find really inspiring. How important do you think it was to have supportive parents like you did, and artistic parents like yeah. your parents growing up, like? My dad would refer to his brother, Tom, as probably a, a hippie, I guess, in, in some ways. But um, your dad is probably maybe the handiest and craftiest person I've ever met in my life. Like, yeah, he can build a deck, go play around the golf, come home, do a painting. Like, he's mm-hmm. he's an artist and have a nine to five job as a principal for many years. And just he can just do anything. Your mom is also probably the biggest music fan i've ever met yeah like your mother is just obsessed with music and just gets it like your mom your mother is one of the first sort of older women who i encountered in my entire life where i felt like a kindred spirit or she's like my cool aunt and you know she's my aunt by marriage but beth has just been such a i guess example of a supportive person and she I don't know, like a, a female role model to me really in so many ways. She has an, a really good eye too. Like, yeah. No, they're both They're My parents are great and they're very supportive and they've always been supportive and they've always kind of created the conditions for all of us to do what we want to do. One thing about mom and dad that I really appreciate and I've, I, I don't know if I've ever told them this and I know that at least mom is listening right now. <laughs> um, is that I never, ever, ever, none of us ever felt like there was any pressure to take a conventional career path. That was not on the table. Like if we wanted to do that, great. But yeah. I think, you know, I, I graduated from Mount A with a big student loan and I was like, I'm going to go to film school and work in the film industry. And, and, uh, 
they're like, great. That's the perfect thing for you to do because you look, and it, it was not, there was never, well, you should actually think about going to law school or you should become yeah. a, mm -hmm. a, you know, a teacher because that would have been, you know, dad was a teacher and then he yeah. became an administrator and it would have been natural for them to say, well, go, you know, being a teacher is a great job. You get your summers off and you, and, and, uh, you know, it's a practical, smart career path. There was none of that. Yeah. They would have cheerfully have supported anything, but just to know that whatever I did, um, wasn't going to piss them off <laughs> or yeah. I wasn't going to get any pressure was really important. Um, and then, you know, like you say, both of you that creatively, there was always lots of great music in our house and there was always lots of, um, art dad's been teaching our, not, not just a great painter, but he's been yeah. teaching art classes and I've taken them several times Yeah, and just involved in that world. Like they're both really involved with the Inverness art center and they've got lots of friends who are artists and musicians and they're huge supporters. They go out to all the shows. They, you know, they're always around. And I think that just, it, you can't help but be impacted by that when you grow up in that sort of environment. What kinds of things do you like to do to separate yourself from work? I think there's a little bit of this illusion that because we choose to pursue a life doing something we love versus, you know, some of the jobs that you and I at least have come from in the past, that it's just this euphoric day over and over and over. But yep. of course, we're still working. Yep. So how do you separate yourself from that and find that joy to come back and be energized? I used to work with a woman who talked about how her dream, her dream scenario was to win the lottery and become a spoiled dabbler. Mm -hmm. She always talked about becoming the spoiled dabbler. When I'm a spoiled dabbler, and what she meant was she wanted to take the time to learn as many skills and crafts as possible. She wanted to learn how to be a really great cook, and she wanted to learn how to, um, she did textile art, and she wanted to learn how to, you know, quilt and do all of that kind of stuff. And I feel like those are the times when I'm the happiest are when I'm, Andrew and I both love to cook. We cook, one of us cooks a nice meal every night. That's kind of our, our time together. And so cooking is one, gardening is another. We have this really beautiful old house in Cape Breton that will need work till the day that we die. It's just one of those, <laughs> like a, it's a, it's a money pit, but it's so much fun to learn how to do things and to just kind of watch YouTube and figure out, um, you know, how to build a cabinet at the top of the stairs. So, because we have no closets, like those kinds of things. So that's really how I occupy my outside of work time. And I feel like it all feeds itself because, you know, even if you're learning one skill that seems to have nothing to do with anything else, you're using another creative part of your brain. So I think I'm just happiest when I'm doing creative stuff. And, um, yeah. Does that answer your question? It does. And it, it, it leads to another question I have. I'm reminded of my aunt Carol once told me, and this is relative to painting, but that she kind of she was an artist and described painting as kind of a series of correcting mistakes, which gave me a lot of artistic freedom because I felt like, no, no, the point is actually to mess up sometimes and yeah. then you fix that. And that to some extent parallels with the editing process in writing. I really struggled when Mike and I went through our experience of writing a book with the editing part. I didn't I just didn't enjoy it. And I felt like Maybe it was because I'm being asked to go back and critique and correct something. Uh, but like, how do you how do you find the editing experience or is your first draft? Are you attempting to make it as strong as possible to prevent that from being so tedious? Well, the longer I've been writing, the more I, I feel like I try to have a polished draft. I used to start when I my first few books I wrote mishmash like i would have an idea for a scene and i would have another idea for a scene and i would write that and then i would jump back and forth in time and gradually a book would sort of emerge 
And, you know, now that I'm a bit more seasoned and I kind of know what the structure and what the, the arc of a story, what a book should look like, I, I'm a lot more prone to start at chapter one and move my way through to the end. There's a bit of jumping around, but it's kind of a linear process. But I always know that the first draft is just a, a beginning. And I actually really love, I love the editing process. Mm -hmm. I especially love when I work with an editor at a publishing house who, usually what happens is I write a rough draft just to kind of get the story out. And then I take a lot of time to kind of polish it and make it as good as I can make it. And I find that very rewarding because I know that that's when I'm going to start to bring sort of a sparkle to it. But then I also really love when I have a, if I get a publishing deal and an editor at the publisher goes away with it and comes back with a bunch of notes and helps me improve it even more. I feel like that takes a bit of the pressure off me because I have to stop being the final, you know, voice of reason. Somebody else is saying, I love this book. I want to work with you to help make it the best book possible. And then I get some advice from an outside source. And I've had the fortune of having really great editors. And I think that's made a big difference for me. Um, but I definitely, I know a lot of people who hate editing. I know a lot of people who don't like working with an editor. I think it's just sort of depends on the type of writer that you are. Mm -hmm. I also know that, you know, my first book that I wrote was sort of a very slight coming of age set in the 90s in Cape Breton about a, a gay kid in the closet. And it was really personal to me. It was the, my most autobiographical book. And it was my first edit, first published book. And so my first time working with an editor. And she was a great editor who taught me a lot. And I owe her everything because she gave me my first book deal. But she was also, she didn't mince words and she didn't try to get be softer on the edges. She would send back drafts with like red scrawl through it and say, I hate this character. Please kill them off. <laughs> Things like that. <laughs> Subtle. And, you know, when you're like a baby writer, you've never written a book and this is your precious first draft. It can yeah. be a bit hard. And I remember that process being more difficult, but yeah. I just kept saying to myself, she knows what she's doing. Take it all with a grain of salt. And at the end of the day, your name's on the cover. You can always push back. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, it's a, editing is, it's a bit of a strange, it's a strange thing, but um, for me, I've really come to enjoy it. What's more important than finding a publisher? What's more important than finding a publisher? We talked earlier about this being something that is almost always asked as writers. Like, how right. do you find a publisher? What's yeah. more important than focus, that being the primary focus in your work? Right. Well, first I'll say that pub publishing is one route. You guys have done the self-publishing route to great success. Right. So there are ways, to, different ways to become published and to find an audience. Um, I've taken the traditional route. That's just worked for me. Um, but I, I think what you're talking about is earlier on before we started the interview, I was saying how I get, I'm really fortunate. I get to meet a lot of teenagers and I do school visits and I do, I'm doing one tomorrow at a school, in, a high school in Halifax. It's NaNoWriMo National Novel Writing Month. Mm. And, uh, this teacher I know is, has his writing class is each of them are trying to write a novel during the month. And so I'm coming in to talk about my experience, uh, with them. And I guarantee you that a lot of the questions from the young people will be, how do you get published? And I think that, um, you know, it kind of goes back to what we were saying before about, you know, the work should be the most important thing and publishing, maybe it will happen, maybe it won't, but do it for yourself first. Try to write a quality, try to make a good painting first. Try to write a great song first. Don't even think about what mm -hmm. will happen to it after that. Let yourself focus on the work and, you know, maybe your first book won't get published, but you'll learn enough that your next book will get published. So I think more important than publishing always is to write something you're proud of. That's what I always kind of tell young people because they're all, of course, they, you know, you talk to some 16-year-olds who are really into writing and they've just learned that they can tell a story. Of course, they think about getting published. 
it's fun to think about getting, it's fun to me think about meeting readers and you guys know it's really great to go out and it's kind of a magical relationship. You write a book, you put it into the world. Right now, somebody is reading the book you guys wrote. Right now, somebody is reading a book that I wrote and we don't even know about it, but we might hear from them. We might not, but it's sort of this mystical relationship and that's all great, but it has to come, what has to come first is a, is a piece of art that you create, something that you pull out of your, you know, your creative soul. And that's a very one-on-one relationship, you and yourself at the start. And I think that needs to take precedence. And when you're proud of that, that means that you truly believe in it. Yeah. And when you truly believe in something you create it then other people are going to be able to connect with that in a more meaningful way. Yeah. Like if, you, if you're just writing something to get published or writing a song to get on the radio or painting to get in a gallery, yeah. like there's parts of it that you're not maybe going to focus in in the same way if you were just trying to create the best, the best piece of art possible. Yeah. And I, I think just when you believe in it yourself, it definitely can connect with people in a much more meaningful way. There's an expression in publishing, don't write to the market. And it's, I mean, it's self-explanatory. If you sit down to write a, write a book, I think nonfiction sometimes, like sometimes there's a real, you know, in politics, you see these books that come out, like there were a bunch of books about Trump and they were super successful. And I mean, in that case, of course, you're going to write to the market. It's some journalist who's got a inside, you know, the inside scoop on, on Trump's inner circle, right to the market there. Sure. Go make your, go make your quick buck. But when you're writing something for more creative purposes, trying to write to the market, meaning trying to write something that you think there's an audience for right now, it just diminishes the work before you even start. The The goal is to write something and then find a market for it. And that's more rewarding in the long run. I think you guys are very good at that because you know that, you know, building an audience and building a, building a, um, you know, a, a following is something that kind of happens organically as you do the work. And, um, it can be a fine distinction, but I think that it's, it's, it's there for sure. Yeah. In, in the early two thousands, you released a Cape Breton ghost story and which was a claymation, uh, was a CBC did it? It was, so I worked in, I worked in the film industry for a while and I did, I worked in on some CBC stop motion shows. Yeah. And so some buddies from film school and I applied for what was called, I think, I don't know if it's still around, but it was the bridge grant and it was the Nova Scotia film development corporation and the CBC provided funds for a, a, a first time production team to make a film. And we applied to make uh, a stop motion called a Cape Breton ghost story. And it had to be a half hour for TV, which is 22 and a half minutes. And it was quite an experience. I didn't let you get to your question, but. <laughs> no, no I, it's not even a question. It's more a story. But I was, I voiced one of the characters. Oh my God, you did. I was, uh, well, you were, yeah, I was just over 20, I guess, probably. You, yeah, you were, were Angus. I was Angus in the, in the, the story. And I remember. I think it was at Christmas, we all gathered around as a family at your parents' place to watch this. And, uh, and play charades. <laughs> and, I've forgotten all of them. And uh, I remember, like, this this piece of work that you did, it's, it's amazing. Like, we're watching it. And then my, when my character first came on, like, my dad just started dying. Like, oh, that's Michael! Everyone, that's Michael! And, and Nana, <laughs> Nana Catherine was, well, she was 
in her 80s, I guess, at that point. She was 96. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe she was in her 90s at that point. She, she always was in her 90s, I guess. <laughs> Felt like anyway. But uh, she didn't really know what was going on. But she included, is that Michael? Like, she, it, the whole focus was that this was your... Your amazing thing that you accomplished, but Nana's like, that's Michael, and Dad's like, that's my, and everyone was pointing out that I did the voice of this character. Like, everybody, this is Tommy's production here. Like, I just did a shitty voice for a character here. Way to steal the thunder. Well, you did a great voice, first of all. It was was more just, uh, yeah, just, well, Dad and Nana kind of uh, latched on, or clued in that that was me, and they... Just couldn't understand it, I guess. Like, I have that. I have that. So it was a really beautiful. I because I was working in stop motion with all these incredible, creative, talented people. I was able to get a lot of favors from a lot of people. Pe- the puppets were beautiful, and the sets were amazing. And we hired an animator who was really talented. And I bring this up. I have a little PowerPoint that I take out to my high school presentations and my school presentations. And I always start off talking about making this film because I would say my most important lesson as a storyteller came from that film, which is we got this grant. We had an idea. We knew what we wanted it to look like. And so we had to come up with a proposal and we had really beautiful character sketches and we had it was really, really nice. We had to sit in front of a panel of people who were deciding who would get this grant and we did a great job. And they said, and we got the grant and we were the first time it was ever uh, an animated production and not a like a live action production. So we got a significant chunk of money at the time to produce this film. And then we put it into, um, uh, you know, I didn't get paid a penny. I did it as sort of a labor of love and the the money went into the production. So we paid for materials and we paid for, we paid Scott McMillan did the music for it. And we, it was it was, uh, I don't think we paid you either. <laughs> I don't think I got paid, no. <laughs> um, but what, and and it, it really occupied, it was basically two and a half years of my life. Animation takes, uh, uh, and it's so slow. It takes so much time. People don't understand how slow animating is. And we would get approximately five or six seconds of footage for every day of full-time animating. Gosh, and we had all crazy. these sets and we were building... It, it was really, we had all the pieces in place to make a really great film and we had the money to do it. But because I was so preoccupied with the the mechanics of production, the script took an afterthought. Like we had this idea for a really short, snappy little thing, and then we had to turn it into a 22-minute film. And so we pumped out a few um, versions of the script, and it was never what we really should have done. What I really should have done as the creator was I should have sat down and come up with a really airtight, fantastic script and then worked out from there. But we tried to do it backwards. And so what we ended up with was a film that looked amazing and all of the, all of the components were fantastic, but the story was a really quite boring and flat. And so we would show it to people. And the first thing they would say was, wow, it looks amazing. It's so professional. It's so wonderful. But nobody ever said, man, I love that story. That was hilarious. That the was really charming. voice of that Angus character, yeah. Yeah. man. <laughs> and so on and on. <laughs> I, I think what I, te- what I tell people, it, you know, young people in particular kind of respond to this is if you're going to tell a story, take the time to get it right the first time. Um, rather than to try to, and you know, in any creative process, don't try and rush something out because you've got an opportunity. Take your time and do it right. And I've definitely, I, I won't publish anything now unless I know that I think that it's really airtight and that the story's there. So it was, I'm very proud of that film. It's a really yeah. nice looking film, but, um, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. I was only a young man back then too. So <laughs> you learn a lot as you grow. 
we've talked about sort of the I don't want to say loneliness because you didn't use that word, but just the the isolation sometimes that being a creative person, certainly a writer, can look like. Like you're spending just hours alone at your computer. And I was looking through your bio earlier and you'd really need like a scroll to roll out the awards that you've won for your writing. Like I just couldn't remember all of them to reference. But how how important is it to have that external recognition or validation and I, I don't mean to put you on the spot because that can be kind of an awkward question to answer, but because you are spending so much time just on your own, h- how does that factor into keeping you motivated? Well, you don't put me on the spot. I am very proud of the awards that I've won. Good. And it was, you know, it's the same book we started off this conversation talking about, Keep This to Yourself. It's a book that I think really put me into a new, brought me to the next level. And I had worked for a long time to hone my craft before I was able to tell that story. And then to have it, you know, validated in that way. So it won the International Thriller Writers Award. Yeah, you tell us, please. It I'm won asking. the uh so the it won the ITW Award, the Thriller, the Thriller Award, um, which was probably the biggest deal. That's an international award. So it was the best YA thriller of the year internationally. It won the Arthur Ellis Award for Best Canadian YA thriller. It won the Ann Connor Brimer Award, which is the best Atlanta Canadian YA book. Um and, and then I got this TV deal. And for me, after, you know, a lot of years of hustling and just trying to work on my craft and to get my stuff, you know, better, get every book be better than the one previous to it. And, you know, the, all the marketing that goes into it, all the networking that goes into it to have the book come out and speak for itself and to have it recognized that way was unbelievably validating. And I also was sort of at a point where I was starting to wonder, am I, do, should I be doing this? Should I start to think about maybe a more of a hybrid career? Maybe I keep writing on the side and I find something else to occupy more of my time. It all happened at the right moment for me to, it was like the universe sending me a message that keep at it. And, um, it felt great. It was the, it, it just felt great that year. There was one year where it was the COVID year. So I don't want to complain about it, but it was the one year where I would have gotten to go to all these galas and get an award in person. Like when I was a kid, I imagined accepting my Oscar. And so I got to, I got to sit on a lot of really cool zoom, <laughs> zoom parties. Did you wear um, a tux? <laughs> I didn't wear a tux. I just kind of hung out in the in the shadows. But it, you know, all that aside, it was just so exciting to have that year where it was just one thing after another, and it, and it 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 was really validating, and it reiterated to me that I'm doing the right thing, and um, and so yeah, it it was very exciting. And I also want to mention that my next book, I hope you're listening, which is another thriller, won the Lambda Literary Award for best best LGBTQ mystery, and the Lammies are they're kind of a big deal. And it was the first YA book to ever win the, uh, um, it's the first YA book to ever win the best mystery. They have a YA category, but this actually won best mystery. And what's exciting and really kind of extra special for me about that is that the Lambda literary organization, it's been around for a long time and it, it's designed to support and, and encourage, uh, queer LGBTQ creators and writers. And so I got to go to the Lambda retreat back in 2017, uh, in Los Angeles. And it was such an amazing experience for me. And that organization does such great work. And especially because right now there's a lot of really anti, anti gay, anti trans rhetoric out there. Um, it's extra special to have been recognized by them. So yeah, I could talk about the awards all day long. (laughs) (laughs) I, I really think, yeah, we, I think we should wrap up on a high note there because I, I could talk to you for hours, Tom, and we probably will when we shut the the mics down, but uh, yeah, let's, uh, 
let's wrap things up on your list of awards and let's Mike wants to you, jump in here. What do you have planned? I guess you're trying to figure out what the next creative project is, but you said you have something your agent has a manuscript with them now. Yeah. So I I have for the past year I've been writing um my my adult debut. So it's an yep. adult mystery mm. thriller. I really love this book. I hope we can find a uh, a home for it. Um I tried to shop another YA book last year that was just so a bit strange and we couldn't, we didn't find a publisher. And that's, that's part of the journey as well is not everything's going to get picked up, but this adult book, which I'm really, really pleased with and really proud of. Um, I really hope we can find a home for it because I, I would like to write for adults as well as for young readers. And I think that this, this is a book, we don't have a title yet, so I can't boost it yeah. uh, in advance, but um, we'll see what happens. And so I think what will happen next is I've really enjoyed writing for adults and I have a few ideas for other adult thrill mystery thrillers. I'm definitely sticking on the mystery thriller track. That's kind of my sweet spot. I found my little corner. And uh so we'll see what happens. I mean, I know I'll find I know I'll find something else to write. It's just a matter of picking the right project at the right time. And so stay tuned. And where where can people find you? Where should we direct them to discover your work and well, you can find my website is tomryanauthor.com and uh, for social media, pretty much anywhere, um, you can find me on Twitter, Instagram, uh, Facebook at Tom Ryan Author, at Tom Ryan Author or Facebook.com slash Tom Ryan Author. I don't really update my Facebook very much, but I'm on Twitter and Instagram quite a bit. And the TV production that you're working on now or that's in the works, will yes. that be, when will that be released? Well, so I'm going to, I, I will find out, um, sometime over the next few months, but we're hoping it's going to be filmed the first quarter of 2023. Mm -hmm. It will be called keep this to yourself. It will be on Peacock, which I don't even know if we can get Peacock here in Canada, but I'm told that it will then eventually migrate over to a wider, uh, streaming platform. So, um, I don't really have any more details than that, but keep, keep your eyes peeled. Keep this to yourself sometime in the second half of 2023. Oh, so exciting. Very, very proud of yeah. all these things you've accomplished, Tom. It's amazing to see. And uh, Well, I'm proud of you guys, and I think you've been doing some amazing stuff. And, uh, you know, we talked about this before the the we started recording, but putting yourself out there and, and you know, putting in the work and being consistent and coming back time and time again and, and keeping at it is, you know, there's it's rewarding on a day-to-day -day level, but over time you see results and you guys have certainly proven that. So Yeah, thank you. It's it's very encouraging to see that uh, that that uh, formula has worked for you because it's it's just a matter of yeah, keep showing up for yourself. Cool. Yeah. Well this was super fun. Thanks so much for having me on. Yeah, we appreciate you being here, Tom. Thanks everyone. Thanks so much, everyone, for tuning in to episode 39. We've been loving receiving all of your messages and shout outs. Your reviews are super helpful. So keep that up and we'll keep showing up too. And a special shout out to CBFM in Mabu, who's playing all these episodes on Saturday. And someone right now is listening and they are like, hey, I'm on CBFM on the radio. And it's pretty cool that we get to be broadcast out there on radio internet land you can catch us twice a week so every wednesday we release the episodes and then yeah these super kind radio station follows up on the weekends for us yeah so uh yeah keep sending us your messages and keep uh giving us the the reviews and all that online the like three Kristen thumbs said. up yeah 
No, five. Oh, five thumbs 17. up. 17. Oh, that's a lot of thumbs. We'll take them all. 17 thumbs up. <laughs> or five stars is good, too. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, thanks so much, folks, and we'll see you soon. Cheers.